0: Happening party people, and welcome to another special edition of Talking During Movies, where the TDM is hitting the DMT. That's right, pimping out my new podcast series, uh, Deep Media Technology, where I'm really talking with the best and brightest thought leaders in the world, as well as artists and entertainers and musicians, celebrating uh, them and their knowledge and, and what's happening around the world. In this conversation, let me just tell you, one one of the smartest guys in the world, quite literally. Uh, Manjot Kurzweil, he's a PhD, did uh, AI and science here at Austin, Texas. He's a professor at USC. He's done work with DARPA. I mean, this guy is legit, absolutely amazing. And this conversation we had is insightful. It's a little bit sobering, uh, and it's also it it's gonna it's gonna make you think. It really is, and that's that's the point of these is to make you think, ask questions, reach out. You can always reach out at Talking During Movies. On Instagram and email is talking during movies podcast at gmail.com. Folks, uh, enjoy this. Check out Deep Media Technology on SoundCloud. And once again, the intro music is a little different this time, obviously. Uh, it's my friend Shaw from his uh, hit song, Just Text Me. And then we close out with that as well. So thank you all for your time. I greatly appreciate it. I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed this conversation. If you like these more serious technology-focused conversations, uh, please check out Deep Media Technology on SoundCloud, soon to be available on iTunes, as well as uh, many, many other platforms. Thanks so much and
1: enjoy. Why you calling your text? From the
0: outside, right? I mean, like, I'm I'm in a position where outside of this, I was working at a financial services group and Mm -hmm. uh, watching the the government not understand when they put things in place, how that harms different financial markets. Right. Well hold one up, it tears another one down. And you look at those things, and at first you want to be frustrated, but you understand there's a lot of people in this boat that are, that are feeling that pain. And then you open up the fridge and you see food, and you open up the pantry and, and you see food and you got toilet paper and all those good things. And you take a pause, and you take a minute back and uh, you, know, you go, okay, well, um, this too shall pass.
2: <laughs> yeah, as it has, right? It's happened a lot in the past. Um, in fact, I, I, was, uh, I was just, I mean, it's been much more devastating in the past. I mean, the Spanish flu was just one example, but even before that, you know, um, I was just reading that in the in the Roman Empire, you know, like in the sometime between 100 and 200 CE, so like the later stages of the Roman Empire, um, mm-hmm. there, was a, there was some uh, massive plague that killed like m- many millions of people, which, which is huge, c- considering the, you know, the, the low population uh, compared to today. Um, and then you know that was the obviously the the one that you know the Black Plague or whatever that was the Black Plague, right? Or yes. Yeah, that that killed so many. I think it was more than a hundred million people or something like that. It was like many millions. Um, so you know, I I just kind of feel like it's uh, you know it's it's, it's actually quite. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a mark of how advanced we are in a way uh, that, you know, even 20 to 30,000 deaths in in a, a world full of billions of people, you know, all closely connected is, is, is still shocking, you know, and, but, you know, if we had the ancients and we brought them here, they would be like, well,
0: you know, we've seen powers. <laughs> yeah. They're like, that was Tuesday <laughs> champ. Come on. Like, this is, we've seen a lot worse. I think it's, I think the, the frustrating part is for a lot of people, right. Is that we're sitting down and we want to be connected, but we can't be connected. And that that yearn, that 2D, that conversations, that Facetime, that Zoom, it doesn't give you. Yeah. It you doesn't. Know, that, that, that that physical contact, that interaction, that no handshaking, no hugs. Right. That's hard. That really is. I I don't think people are are talking about that pain point enough
2: i agree with you i'm I'm actually really surprised by how little people are talking about it because i i mean to me this hits very close to home because i am completely all alone over here you know like i do not have family over here right like i all my family is in india and so they are facing the same thing now india is under lockdown right now um uh you know but uh you know they have each other and and there's a um you know in india it's a very community driven a very collectivist kind of culture, like uh, many other Asian countries, you know, and uh, there are always people around you, you know, and um, even like I I do not know of uh, people who actually live alone. There's always a community, like pe- neighbors are friendly with each other and so on. Um, you know, And over here, like I, um, uh, you know, I'm completely alone over here. I mean, I, I know my neighbors. I get along with them. Um. Uh, But, you know, in modern culture, whether it's here or anywhere else, you know, people tend to stick with friends and family and don't hang out with strangers all that much. And we're supposed to be practicing social distancing anyways. But it hit close to home because, you know, I've been for like more than a week now. I mean, the only interaction I've really had is through the screen. Um, And it does feel a little bit strange. And uh, um, I mean, for me, the only way that I've been able to cope with this is... um, you know two mechanisms i mean one really is that i i mean i do have a lot of meetings you know and so every time i have the meeting i feel like okay i'm talking to someone and it's engaging the social part of my brain so i think that's one aspect even though it's incomplete but the second aspect is that um i have a lot of creative energy so whenever i do feel um you know like the dark shadow if you will you know where the head gets a little bit heavy or you feel like you're completely alone and you know what do you do and you need someone to talk to I mean, I have creative outlets to um, um, do that, but I know a lot of people don't because they—they, they, you know—they switch on the television. You know, I don't even own a television. I—I I, I decided a long time ago not to have one. I might change my mind a few months from now, but I'm very <laughs> happy that I chose not to have one because even YouTube and all that—you can only watch it to an extent, and uh, I don't watch too much of that, anyways. And so for me, there's the piano and there's the there's writing I love writing so you know for me it's just all kind of writing whether it's a it's a it's a scene you know and I don't care about the commercial part of it you know I'm like okay I just want to express myself so I've got into a stage where I'm like okay let me if I feel like writing something I'm going to write it and I'm not going to think about you know is this going to see the light of day or you know who else is going to read this whether it's in an academic sense or a fiction sense or whatever you know I don't I don't care about that part anymore all that much but I just write for for expressing, you know, and so I have that outlet and I know a lot of people don't and they're very frustrated and, and it does take a very psychological toll and I was very surprised that um, we're not seeing enough on this, um, especially considering that in normal times, uh, you know, people do talk about psychology a lot, right? right? I mean, the mental health is like a big topic of discussion during normal times, but I'm not seeing the same level of discussion when it's so important which is right now and uh, it, it's very surprising to me i, I can't explain it I, I i can only assume that people are not uh, they, they thought of it as a um, they didn't take it seriously before you know and so that they were talking about it before they were paying attention to it before the psychology because it was a fashionable thing to do and i mean they didn't you know take it as seriously as they should have and so now, when there's a time of crisis, it, it's been put on the back burner, you know, and that's kind of disturbing in a way, you know, that the the mental health and uh, you know that part is not being discussed enough. I, I find that disturbing, you know.
0: Yeah, I do as well. And, you know I've been noodling on this this thought, and I'll just I'll share it here with you. I I love your insights as someone who lives here in the U.S. and works with students and businesses of of all different kinds, and as well as um, you know uh, be, being from from India, so. You know, I think one of the harder parts is, and one of the disconnects that we're not talking about, and I and I'm going to wrap this into what you do and, and everything else in the media and technology side, but from a psychology side, in America here, we've been told, you know, you can do anything, pull yourself by, by your bootstraps, come over here with a thousand dollars in your pocket, and own the world. You know, if you've got uh, if you're if you've got talent, and you have drive, and if your drive is bigger than your talent, you can do anything and so you have that side that we've been told since the day they sailed the ocean blue right Mm -hmm. you're going to come over here and do and now you have this moment in time where they're saying stop all work stay home don't do anything and we're going to shut down businesses and the Mm -hmm. the rhetorical disconnect there the frustration and then and then you have people saying and then you have these celebrities and, and social influencers saying stay home stay home stay home And people in their mind, or more in their heart, I guess in their heart they understand that, right? Because they don't want anyone to get hurt or get sick. They don't want to be the cause of that. But their mind is pacing and racing and going, yeah, but I want to work. And they're like, well, H-E-B or Amazon or Walmart, they're hiring. It's like, no, no, no. I was the VP of brand at this company and it got shut down. Or I ran three bars and they all got shut down and I want my job back. Because that was my passion. That was my drive. And it was taken away. Right. And I don't think the people that are asking us to stay home understand the hundreds of years of history uh, that's right. almost ingrained in our DNA of you can do anything. Just go and work.
2: Yeah I think I I agree with you and I that's why that that's the part where I feel lucky that I you know my job didn't get affected you know and so I do feel very lucky about that because you're absolutely right that um I think what is even more disturbing although um I'm sure people would love to talk about this but they're afraid to is um how easily it was taken away from them like yeah. it was hard. it's not just that it's been taken away. you know, like um, businesses do fail and shut down and all of that. so they everyone knows it's not easy and and they live with that and they make those choices and they accept that it's not easy and that there are powerful forces um, that can uh, you know lead to the lead to your business being shut down. But I think what was um, what has disturbed a lot of people, and I see it in their faces, they don't actually say it, they don't articulate it. Maybe because they're not thinking about it from that point of view, but it just seemed, um, you know, the the sadness with which uh, these decisions were imposed on the broad population um, uh, is is I think very disturbing because a lot of people are now questioning: Am I really that free? Uh, you know, because there was I mean, there's all of this uh, all of these things that you mentioned. You know, that the drive. You know, if you have more of that, you can. You can be successful it, it was predicated on freedom the underlying um thread that ties all of that together is that you know it's a choice that you know if if you you know the drive even is almost like a choice because you may not have uh, you know the talent may be genetic or maybe a function of early upbringing but the drive is something that that you know as long as you're passionate and you're driven and somehow there's a notion that there's a choice or there's a freedom in that and you have you're free to actually go and be innovative and, and resourceful and you have to observe and you have to persist and all of those are choices um, and and now i think people are frustrated because um, somewhere they are starting to realize that um uh, they may not have as much of a choice as they thought um or as they were led to believe um and uh, you know that it can all come to a crushing stop uh to, to these top-down dictates um you know that and then not just top-down dictates but social dictates because in, in some sense it's not just that the government is coming in and saying that okay there's a law if you step outside your house or you do that i mean there's some part of that like civil fines and all of that so i'm not denying the power of the government but there's also a, a very complicit uh, um uh, support from you know the media and the you know a certain elitist group like celebrity um and and there is a you know it's almost like old times you know where you had the king and the king was like the government right but there was there was also a big complicit uh, infrastructure around the king like the noblemen and the the you know all these people the priests right the religion um, all of those things you know which which we think we have separated um, but they are still here in the in in a modern form. Um, and, you know, it's it's like you're a bad person. If you try to go out and you try to even suggest that, no, I should be working, um, you'll be shut down as someone who is selfish and um, doesn't care for other people. And so, you know, this this was exactly what they did when there was no separation of church and state. Um, the, the church would, if you tried to be dissenting or to question, then you would be told that you're bad and you're against God and you're against nature. Um, we don't say it that way now, but we, we've changed the the words but it is kind of like that i mean imagine if you were to go out and and write a, 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 an article on okay you know maybe we should actually start working and maybe we should trust people to to maintain social distancing and maybe what the government should be doing is maybe producing more masks and and not respecting people to do work um you know and if you say that i, I can promise you you'll be um you'll get a lot of hate speech on uh Social media where people will be like, you know, you're, you're selfish and you are you don't understand this. You should trust the, the doctors, the this and that. they've told us that we have to be locked down. Otherwise, millions of people will die. This will happen. That will happen. Um, you know, and if you say anything against that, it's heresy. I mean, it's the modern equivalent of heresy. So it's very interesting. I mean, this has happened before. And we like to think that we've changed as a society. But I don't think we've actually changed all that much. And, and to me, that's the interesting analog. Because when I read about these things um and as someone who does like to read about these things i do see the parallels you know it's a um and i also know that it's very dangerous to speak about it and it is very dangerous i would never go out and actually tell someone let alone a colleague like i'm telling you right now but i wouldn't actually tell a colleague um or maybe even a friend you know maybe i would tell family and i would tell someone who you know like you where it's it's like you know we're not um sort of in this uh, intertwined, interdependent kind of relationship of any kind, uh, you know, but there's so, some kind of agreement topically. Uh, but I, I would never say this to a colleague, you know, if I do that, then uh, in some sense, I would be afraid that they would brand me in their mind as, uh, you know, with all these labels, you know, and uh, um, uh, that would tarnish, you know, uh, my sort of standing in a way in that society. Um,
0: and, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I, and, I, and I'll bring, like I said, I'm going to bring it back to uh, to to what you do in some aspects. But isn't that what you've seen on the internet with knowledge graphs? Right, where it you you think you've got this freedom to search anything? I'm going to go to the search bar and type in what I want. I'm just going to get the result that I need. Right. And really, if there's no freedom there. It's devised to drive you to the location they want to drive you to. Oh, yes. It, it, is, it, is, it is representative of a false sense of security and freedom. And for the small businesses that don't comply or can't afford or, you know, or can't do anything in that specific ecosystem, there is more harm than good.
2: Yes, I think so I mean the big companies and the government I mean they have they control the data right so it, ultimately it's the the knowledge graph is is uh, I mean a search technology I think first and foremost um, although it's useful for other things also but you know it always had its origins in, in search and uh, um, or you know modern origins the last 10 15 years and and the search engine you know Google obviously was the one that popularized uh, the phrase um, and, and and sort of showed that it's possible to do rich search by using the knowledge graph. But ultimately, uh, what everyone forgets is that that the when you build a knowledge graph or when you do search, there is the underlying data, right? And and there's so much data that you can um, slice and dice it up in uh, very normative ways and. Um, uh, you know and and if you don't if you don't have uh you know like for example if, if there is a very small fraction of people who are um uh you know giving you a dissenting opinion or or giving you news or data that is not conforming with the vast majority then it's quite possible that these algorithms will weed you out and and will sort of think of you as uh like an anomaly or as sort of a minority opinion that doesn't deserve to uh, have the same weight in the search rankings and results as the majority opinions, you know, and, um, and there's also a certain, um, you know, when we think about these knowledge graphs, you know, we have the belief that uh, the experts know best, you know, and so it's if, if there's a data set that is coming from an expert, then that should be trusted more than the non expert. Now, in many cases, this is true. But uh, you know, it's not. Uh, it's it's become very difficult, I think, to distinguish between the factual knowledge and what we what I would call the dialectic knowledge, which is the opinions. You know, and so it may be that you have the experts, and they have a lot of knowledge on the disease and how it spreads and the models and so on. And I mean, there are some very interesting models in epidemiology, um, and and that's kind of how they make all the predictions about spreading and you know. Um, uh, they have, uh, you know, and 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 you can throw in some machine learning and all of that. But these are mathematical models that these experts are aware of. That they know how to use it. They know how to estimate the parameters. They are very good at that. But you know, that informs policy. And so, you know, it may be that if we confuse the two and we 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 start um, assuming that the experts are also very good at making policy, um, I think that is where there's a danger that. Uh, you know, we are presenting something as expert or as very high quality knowledge where it really isn't. Like it's an opinion. It's not really knowledge. It's an opinion that is based off of a body of knowledge, but it's possible to come up with an alternate opinion. And that alternate opinion gets shut out because of the um, the snowballing effect. You know, that you have some experts, they come out with a policy measure and then, you know, other people pick that up and recite it and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of promote it and it goes higher and higher up on the search engine, um, it gets more and more confidence in the knowledge graph. And then before you know it, you know, everything else that descends from that um, becomes low quality knowledge or becomes fringe knowledge. You know, so it's, I feel like the knowledge graph technology is is uh, a very good way of, uh, if it's used in the right way, it could maybe help to bring some of the, um you know, dissenting opinions, uh, alternate interpretations, um, uh, to the forefront, and also to separate the facts from the from some of the more um, uh, policy-oriented or opinion-oriented kind of knowledge uh, with the right modeling. So you know, you have to have the right people doing this and building the knowledge and and not introducing their own biases uh and so on and also the fact that the machine learning that is being used to build the knowledge graph may be a little bit noisy so then all of those things have to be taken into account but I do think that that um there is a way to use knowledge graphs to actually be more democratic in, in the dissemination of knowledge. Um whether that's actually happening or not is is I think up for debate. Um, okay. Yeah.
0: Now you put some you said something very interesting there. You said if you know if used in the right way and as a as a real thought leader in, in technology, and, and where do you see? Give me an example of where you maybe you see some new technology being used in the right way, and where are you looking and seeing some technology, and it's giving you pause, saying, "This could go down the wrong direction very
1: quickly."
2: Yeah, I, I would say the technology that is being used in the right way um, would be. Uh, You know, like the White House, so to just give an example, you know, the White House um, issued a directive um, where what they did was that they released uh, 29,000 papers, academic papers, that uh, on the coronavirus. So, you know, a lot of people may not be aware that this this virus is just one of, it's a member in a family. So the coronavirus is a family, as far as I understand, and this particular strain... Uh, emerged in 2019, and so that's why they call it COVID-19, coronavirus disease 19. Um, but, you know, the coronavirus itself is not novel. There, are, um, there have been more than 29,000 papers till date, and probably there will be a lot more because of this crisis. But even before this, there were 29,000 papers. So what the White House did was that, it released all these papers as a cohesive data set, and it started working with technology providers with Microsoft and with some other um, big companies and uh, you know even small companies, I believe. but essentially it made the twenty nine thousand uh, papers available, and it actually asked AI scientists, including groups like ours, through the directive, to try and apply our technology to these twenty nine thousand papers, you know, maybe to build a knowledge graph or to do other things, you know recommendations, predictions. Um, Uh, You know, all kinds of whatever AI or machine learning uh, that we feel can be applied to this data set to help doctors, to help other people, uh, maybe come up with a cure or vaccine faster, um, or maybe just provide supporting technology as you try to do the medical science, you know, to to help them better come to grips with the 29,000 papers. I mean, no one has read all those papers, right? It's not humanly possible. Uh, but So, you know, there may, be, there may be things that you are looking for, but it, it may be very difficult to find and it, that's kind of one place where we can really help. So we are actually making efforts on this. We have been processing the 29,000 papers in our group. We, we've been collecting a lot of social media data um, and I've been working with those as well. We have a lot of news data, tens of thousands of news articles that have um, come to us since uh, the early part of this year and we are looking at those so there's a lot of social science and uh, social media news media analysis that that we are doing we're also trying to build a knowledge graph from the paper so this is work that that we are doing within the institute and within the university also so this this is um, i think a great thing because it just goes to show that um we were we were not hampered by bureaucracy you know we're now in an era where because of the supporting technologies uh you know like cloud computing like uh kaggle you know the, the data set was released and and ha- is now um even open for a competition i believe on on kaggle but because of all these platforms all these websites and the ease with which we can share data and so on um it has become possible to do this at, at short notice to uh to start building stuff and applying stuff to these kinds of data sets um the other thing which is interesting is um uh um, you know, even beyond these data sets, I mean, some of the big companies and the press, uh, you know, like the New York Times and, uh, you know, uh, journal uh, companies that publish journals like Springer and Elsevier and, and so on, they have made the coronavirus papers um, free of charge. So for me, that doesn't make a big difference because within the university system, we anyways have subscriptions, so we can access all of this for free, but outside the university system, or if you don't have a very expensive subscription, uh, you have to purchase these articles usually, and they're, they're quite expensive. It could be twenty or thirty dollars per article in many cases, um, which means that you know it's really not uh, it's not feasible at scale. You know, like maybe if you downloaded an article every six months or you know something like that, it might be feasible. But if you're trying to download and study hundreds of articles, it, it becomes economically infeasible. So they have these companies have voluntarily decided to make a lot of coronavirus press coverage, um, journal articles and so on free and this, this also enables the broader public to participate in a way it's not just something for universities or, or people who believe you know elitist essentially uh, and i would sort of maybe fall in that class but uh, you know it, it's it's uh, something that is very democratic for that reason um, a lot of hackers can work with this um the other day i was also invited i i, I haven't accepted yet but i might um to participate in a hackathon that is being organized a virtual hackathon Um, where they are trying to, uh, they have a platform where they are making a lot of resources and data sets available and they're inviting developers and all kinds of other people who want to apply technology to this, to log into the platform, to, uh, you know, uh, sign up for the virtual hackathon and then to donate some of their time and expertise to building stuff. So this, I think, has been a great outcome of the technology. It truly shows how, um, uh, you know, we, can really apply what the things that we have been developing and working on to uh, to these uh, data sets and to this problem. Now the effectiveness remains to be seen. So we have to see maybe a year from now or six months from now, just how effective were we? Sure, we leaped onto it, we used a data set, maybe we published a lot of papers and books, we may get some press, but how effective were we? Like were we were we able to contribute something useful through our technology? That we won't know right now. But you know, maybe six months later, one year later, we will see some very compelling uh, success stories of how AI and, uh, and machine learning played a big role in this. So I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for that. And I, hopefully I will get to play some kind of role in that. Now the bad part, um, I think uh, uh, what I'm reading is that there's a significant lack of privacy. If, if not right now, then certainly on the horizon. So we know that there is a lot of talk right now of using uh, cellular data, of using movement data, in some countries, they are actively uh, looking at that data. You know, in some other places, they are uh, monitoring uh, physical movements of patients or you know people who might be suspected of being at risk. So you know, there is a, a complete lack of privacy. It is almost normalizing that like, uh, people are starting to realize that maybe this is a new normal, and we have no right to expect privacy. And it's it's again selfish or unfair or unrealistic to expect privacy. So that is very dangerous, Um, and that is also happening uh, on these video conferencing tools. So, for example, I was reading that some of the big video conferencing companies um, I won't name them, uh, but you know, one or two. And and Skype is not one of them, by the way. So it's it's a non-Skype platform which is being very commonly used right now. I won't name it explicitly, but what I'm reading is that they have some features where they are actually able to make out if you are um, uh, you know, if you're zoning out you know, and, uh, or they are developing such features. And it's not, it's not um, a complete stretch of imagination to think that such features may become commonplace, especially if people work a lot from home. It may be that, that employers and other people uh, demand surveillance. You might say that, okay, we are paying you a wage and you're not in the office. So how do I know that you're actually even working? And um, you know, so they may have these kind of features where they are using AI and they are using uh, um, kind of surveillance plus AI to not just monitor you, but to actually uh, control your behavior. Because if you feel like you have to behave a certain way, you have to act a certain way, otherwise you'll get flagged by the system uh, and that might impact you negatively, um, it will condition your behavior. So you, will, you won't change the system, you will change your behavior. That's what we find with these large- scale systems and uh, yeah it's very dangerous i I, I will if, if it if it if it shows up at, at in our institute or in our university which I don't think it will uh, there is a degree of trust over there you know and we have our own ways of uh, accountability because we produce academic outputs or uh, you know we teach we have meetings very regularly so we have our own degree of accountability I think many other professions do as well but there are many professions where you know it's not um if you think about it the only um, accountability that is really there is a very indirect one which is that are you physically present at work and so for those kinds of jobs where you're where the where the criteria is that are you physically present at work um are you physically doing work are you paying attention is there attention on your face right um that that's why this technology will could get used and um, could be used to make decisions, potentially. And I'm not happy about that. I think that um, that's very dangerous. And, and uh, hopefully there will, people are already uh, protesting against it, but it's not, it's not picking up to the extent that it should. Um, so I, I don't want that to become mainstream. I think that it's not mainstream yet, but it shouldn't become mainstream, um, that kind of thing. And it shouldn't be allowed to condition behavior. Uh, but that is that's a very real possibility. It's not uh it's not something that is very dystopian or in the future. It is here and now. These features are here, they already exist. So it's uh, um and and potentially could get used, and there's nothing really that you would be able to do about it legally because um it's it's like saying, well, you know, if, if an employee comes in and says, Well, you know, I'm not going to come to work physically, I mean, you don't have legal protection for that, right? The employer has a right to then tell you, well, sure, then then your job goes to someone else. And now they could do the same thing, right? They're like, you know, you have to use this surveillance and technology, otherwise your job goes to someone else. And uh, um, I I don't think that, I'm worried about that. I don't think it will come to us, but um, because we have other measures of accountability and and that those are very objective, Um, come with their own criticisms, but they're very objective, you know, because it's all academic outputs in a way. but it could become commonplace in other fields and then virtually it could become commonplace everywhere else by spreading by becoming mainstream uh so it's a that's the danger it's a very real danger especially wow. now when everyone is working from home so they're in front of a camera you know so it's not yeah so you know we never thought about it that way but right? we always thought that okay within the workplace we are we know we, we have to behave a certain way right and so we do have uh, we know that there's there are cameras. there's a certain kind of behavior you can't Uh, go around screaming you know expletives or threatening or anything like that and you shouldn't I mean that's unacceptable behavior in general Um, but you know you could there's a certain within the workplace we were we had certain norms and we dressed a certain way and and we were expected to be a certain way and there was a physical presence so it's not that there was someone watching all the time because you were physically there if someone wanted to go and talk to you they would go and knock on your door or they would come talk to you or there would be slack channels and so on but now it seems like that's not enough. It's not enough to be on Slack and to be at home. Um, and it's not enough to be on Zoom, apparently, um, uh, or any other channel. But it's, uh, you know, it could be that you have to actually be paying attention and you have to uh, be actively engaging, whatever that means. And that there are technological means now of, of, of verifying that. Um, so you have to behave a certain way, basically. Sure. I All mean, e- basically, you could.
0: Expression. Right. Basically, they could download a software to keep your camera on on your work computer at home, just to make sure you're working. Watch your stroke keys. Watch what you're doing. Are you on the phone? Is it a Zoom? How are you engaging? It is. Um, it's it's a, John Lynch, the CEO and founder of a uh, PCMA, a, a very high end uh, group, uh, in Southern California. I'm going to put a twist on it. What he said, he said, it's no longer about uh, customer loyalty. It's about loyalty to customers. And I would say that in this time, as businesses get shut down and as people are, are, are struggling, but also trying to adapt and, and work hard, it is not so much about an employee's loyalty to a business, but a business's loyalty to that employee. And I think from what you're saying and what we're seeing is not a building of trust and not a building of loyalty, but because it breaks a traditional norm that that they're used to seeing, it's creating a lack of trust and a lack of loyalty to that employee. And
2: so, because what I'm seeing is, and this was predicted, I think uh, you know there were sociologists who were writing about this in the '60s and '70s when the consumer society was at its peak, right, and was keep on, kept on growing that uh, that there's a, you know, that workplace insecurity will actually keep on growing. It will not go down. And that it will be in order to uh, prevent uh, a general, um, you know, outcrop of uh, or a general uh, expression of dissatisfaction so that people don't express it too openly in case it catches fire, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what they do is that they try to mask it under all these notions of, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be loyal to our, employees we're gonna be loyal to our customers we're gonna do this and do that um and you know in return the employee should also be loyal to us the employee should not look at this as a job the employee should look at this as a as a calling uh you know that you're here because you you know you really um believe in the business almost like a religion you know where it's like you know you're here because you you put all your heart and soul into it And you're passionate about this. And, you know, So it's become much more than a job. I think a lot of people want it to be a job. They're like, okay, I am going to work hard. I am going to give you my best. But this is different from, let's say, a passion. Like, you know, maybe my true passion is cooking, right? And I know I can't maybe make money out of that. I have a family to feed. But that's my passion. I have a right to have a passion. The right to have a passion has been usurped by businesses and what they are doing is that they are telling you that you have to be passionate and you have to be loyal and all of that um and there's a lot of rhetoric around that so you know you can't um uh you know you have to have this artificial uh, um kind of uh, passion for what you do even if it's a very normal you know like a cashier job or whatever but you can't actually say oh you, yeah it's just a cashier job and, and you know i do it to make money and I work hard at it, but I do it to make money, I'm professional, and for me, it's a job. Um, it's, it's, it's complete heresy. I mean, you won't find anyone openly telling you that this is just a job, even though it is just a job. And, uh, um, you know, instead you have, to, you have to kind of mask it and uh, uh, things like, oh, I'm so passionate about this, and I love this company, and this and that, and so excited to be here, I'm so excited to be working here. How often have you heard that, right? Um, recently, in the last few years. And the, the, the truth of the matter is that now that's become a criterion. And if uh, it can be used as a means of dismissal um, as well, that you know, you're not engaged enough in your work, um, or you know, you're not happy here, you know, or maybe this is not the right calling. And so we're going to get rid of you, and we're going to get someone for whom it is the right calling. It, it is extremely um, uh, disturbing. To me when I see all these things and it, can, it perfectly explains what is happening right now with the dissent, the anti-establishment dissent, you know people are uh, very frustrated you know they are voting for anti-establishment candidates. you know there are there's more and more because you can't suppress it forever. you know I mean it's to a certain extent you can quell the damage and you can control people but it, at some point it does catch fire. you know not, historically that control has not worked at a large scale. So if there's too much repression, um, it will catch fire. And uh, and you know I think we are we are starting to see that. I think people are starting to see through all these things, um, and they're starting to realize that it's a means of control. That that when they are being told that the work is something more than work, that that it's a means of control. It is not a means of elevation. Um, you know. It's interesting. So, it's yeah. Very interesting. It's very interesting because people don't think about it that way, right? Yeah. It's, i mean it's it's like it's almost like you've been conditioned not to think about it you've been told that okay don't think about it that way if you think about it that way you're crazy or you're stupid or you're this and that so it's it's in some sense i have the luxury to think about it that way because i really do i am very passionate about what i do and in some sense i i almost don't have to do it you know and everyone around me knows that which is that i don't really have to do it maybe because of my family background you know, and, and I come from a business background, so my parents were never in a job. They always had and still have their own business, and so they were people of means in a way. And so in some sense, I grew up with a with a skepticism and a, and a, maybe a view of what money and capitalism really is. And I'm not anti-capitalist or pro-communist or anything like that. I think all of these are systems, so we have to look at it as a system with pros and cons and then make a choice as a society what to do, so I'm not... Against any one system, I'm not for any one system, but um, I do think that um, a lot of times, especially now, we, we often see some systems where something is presented as one way whereas in reality it is a means of control. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and people are conditioned not to question that, uh, to not think of it as a means of control and to not debate it for what it is, um, and, and to be called heretics if you do think of it in that way. Um, And, you know, that's why, I mean, you can see the consequences right now. It's playing out in front of you in the voting, uh, you know, in the elections, in the, you know, in the kinds of polarization that we are seeing and the difference between what people, even at the polling level, right? People are not being honest, even with polls. Like there has been so much disconnect ever since the Trump election um, and before the Trump election on what the polls were saying, what the models were saying and what people actually did, what the outcome was. In the real world, there was a huge disconnect. I mean, people were saying that okay, this person is going to win, that person is going to win, and both on the left and the right, we we saw that being broken time and again with Brexit, with far right governments, far left governments getting elected. Um, you know, and I, I I I see this as a as a um, the data that is feeding into the models is wrong data. There's nothing wrong with the model. The model is good, but the data is all wrong because people are not providing the right data anymore. They they are afraid of being honest. They don't want to be honest um, because they know it could be used against them. Uh, sure. So yeah. So I'm I'm very concerned about these things. To be honest, and uh, hopefully the technology will help us to solve the problem, not to make it worse. So my, my fear okay. is
0: that the technology is being used to make it worse in some ways. And my thing, yeah, that that leads to my next question, which is, you know, we we've watched fear and opinion and bias try to drive decision. And people, instead of sharing truthfully what they do, right, they just vote secretly and they just, they, they, they just balk, you know, they just balk the, the, like a chicken. They just do the count, they just do the appropriate line, whatever it may be for the day, right? There's like, oh, that if that's what George Stephanopoulos said, sure, yeah, I agree. But behind the scenes, to your point, they're thinking what they want. And I'm wondering, in all of this, can fear, what is the impact of fear and bias in technology on AI? Because that seems to be, we're trending in that way, we're, if, we're, if we're adopting more and more technology and we're moving away from the talking heads of media because we know that they're biased, like we just agree all of a sudden that the news is no longer the news, that this is the left channel, this is the right channel, the moderate channel is Joe Rogan. I mean, this is, <laughs> right? These are terrifying times. No, but I mean, that's I think,
2: funny. I think, I think that, that it's, it's, it's interesting that humor which used to be a very fringe, uh, uh, you know, modality of discussion, right? Like people would, you know, go to the the comedy club, and and in some sense, you would be expected to be heretic in the in the comedy club. But now it's interesting that that heresy, in a way, has kind of become the non-polarized uh, mode of communication, you know, where people are like, okay, if I if I want like, um, you know, something which is which doesn't come with all that baggage of left and right, and uh, you know, uh, anti-immigrant and this and that. Um, you know, then I need to go to a, a comedian, you know, or yeah. I need to go to someone who is irreverent or is known for being irreverent. So he has a sanction, you know, so Joe Rogan or, you know, previously Joan Rivers, who has obviously passed yeah. away. I mean, all these people, they had a certain sanction uh, or they have a sanction to be irreverent. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's almost like even that is a form of control where, you know, it's understood that, you know, you have to have some channels to let yourself out. And even that has been sanctioned by, uh, by the media. Right? They're like, okay, you know, I, we understand. You, know, you, you want occasionally to go somewhere where you're not bogged down by baggage, and here's the channel. We're going to give you the channel. You, know, you go and listen to that person and, and let yourself out and laugh a little and let down your baggage, and then you come right back with your baggage to Fox News or to uh, MSNBC. Um, so that's why I don't... For me, it was a very conscious decision to not have a television. that reason i was like the single biggest way to fight this is to is to not have a television so i have never had a television here in the united states never wow yes i mean i never will probably i think i might for decorative purposes i mean in some sense the the problem is that the the house the living room they don't look complete without a television so i may actually have one for decorative purposes but it's unlikely that i will i will ever get a um uh, you know like a cable or anything like that and this is not just true here it's true for all modern media i mean in india you know i i talked to my um parents and they have a they have this completely warped vision that they are getting from the media where you know like my mom was telling me that in india the con- the conspiracy theory is very widespread that um and people are exchanging on whatsapp and everything that you know this disease was spread by china and that china deliberately spread the disease they developed the vaccine in advance they spread it in Wuhan and that when um, they shut down Wuhan, it was a very controlled shutdown and they brought the hospital out and all of that. And now the spread has stopped over there and the whole the rest of the world has started collapsing. And so th- this is a very real theory that is uh, spreading. Whether it's true or not, we don't know. I mean, the truth is we don't know. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's OK to dismiss it. Sure, you know, we shouldn't blame a country till till we have proof. You know, so there's a presumption of innocence, maybe uh, that that I'm in favor of. Um, but this is spreading, you know, through the, through the uh, word-to-mouth word, uh, word uh, kind of channels. And, um, you know, in the media, you know, they are also talking about this quite openly, at least in India. And because um, uh, it's very pro-state right now in India, the prime minister is a, is a right-wing prime minister, and he's very, he has control over the media, even though in, in name it's democratic, but, but in, everyone knows that he has very strong control over the media. Um, and you know everyone the media never criticizes him i mean every time you uh you know switch on a news channel you hear about how he has done so well and how world leaders are are praising him you know on his response and what he's done I and mean, basically he did everything right you know and uh you know and all of that and that you know uh, it's it's very interesting i think the it's it's a total form of control and all this has been predicted you know and it's very difficult i never realized uh you know, and, and that's why I'm very thankful that I like to read about these things a lot that I don't just limit myself to uh, to you know the modern computer science or AI and all of that but I try to go back and actually um, look at you know what people have written about knowledge, about society, about uh, control, about data you know because ultimately the media has become data for us. so that's why it's relevant. Um, and you're absolutely right that if we get the data from traditional sources, what, what we would consider trustworthy sources, there is a very deep inherent bias, and uh, um, the algorithms will pick it up, um, you know, and so it, it then it will self-circulate, you know, so it will reinforce uh, what is already happening, and um, the power of the individual is will get lost in it um, because uh, you know the aggregate dominates you know in, in, in all these algorithms the statistics plays a very important role and statistics is, is very correlational by its very nature and it's very aggregate in the way that it operates so the aggregate opinion which has a deep inherent bias it's a systemic bias um shows up in the data and the algorithms everywhere um, you know and uh, it's i mean ultimately we have to get good data um, but it's it's a completely open question that what is good data and where should we limit and what can we do? Um, these are very interesting questions. They are being studied as we speak in the AI literature, um, but they are only starting to be studied. The, the influence is only starting to be understood.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, I was listening to my, my friend, Lori Siegel, at Dot, Dot Media, and she was talking to an expert, and I forget the, the gentleman's name, but he said, our relationship with technology and the ability of, of AI and bots to communicate with you, the greatest, the greatest threat to our independence and to who we are as a whole is bot interaction because they can literally change your mood. If you're okay. engaging with a bot, a smart AI, it can literally, you could, you could through WhatsApp or something else, make a friend and it would, it could be a bot. And a billion people could become depressed overnight.
2: Actually, it's much worse than that.
0: <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> and,
2: and I don't mean worse in the billion sense. You know, I mean it's worse that you don't even need a bot. It turns out that there are studies. Um, and I know about it because I'm writing a book right now in my spare time. You know, that's what I meant about the, you know, the creative art. And I'm writing a book on I was I, was, I always plan to write this book on uh, social media, you know, and it's it's I want this to be a nonfiction, you know, factual. But still with my interpretation on it i mean every non-fiction has an interpretation um you know of, of how the author sees uh sees the world you know that they're writing about i mean it's not just dry facts right um, it's not like a textbook um you know but uh, and the textbook will come out too you know we have we just received very good news from mit press they're very happy with our draft um we will be giving them the final version of the knowledge draft textbook in the uh, towards the end of April and then hopefully it will get published before fall so we we want we are keeping our fingers crossed for publication before fall so we can use it in our fall courses um so that that's the textbook you know and that's now coming to an end right because I'm, I'm revising and planning to submit the revised version so i'm already on to my next book um you know which is on social media and so the book is all about uh social media it's it's meant to be a fun book it's not meant to be a dark book or a uh, you know book that is basically predicting doomsday but it's it's but it has chapters on bots for example it has chapters on um, you know influencers the modern influencer you know um you know what does that mean what what's the influencer economy it has chapters on uh, on eco chambers and polarization um, you know, so the eco-chamber, you know, the, this phenomenon that you were pointing out earlier, which is that when you actually go to Google News or you go to YouTube, and if you're, let's say, staunchly conservative, you would see recommendations from Fox News Fox News, and from right-wing channels. If you're left-wing, then you will see recommendations from MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, and, all, you, know, um, uh, you know, all these people, and you won't see the other side. It will not be recommended to you. And like, you will not search for it actively unless you're a true skeptic Right. And most people are not skeptics. And so they want to believe they have what's called a confirmatory bias, which means that you actively look for evidence that will confirm your beliefs. This is true. It's been observed. It's scientifically observed that that you will actively credit evidence that confirms your beliefs and you will discredit evidence that doesn't confirm your belief. Um, And this is this comes this is amplified by technology and by recommendation systems. you know, and so, uh, you know, all these things, you know, so I'm writing about these things in the book, and it's it's very interesting that, that in the book, I, I cite a study in one of the chapters um, where it turns out what they found in the study, this was like just two years ago, they published a study and there have been others like it, where coming back to the point, you know, it's not, you don't even need a bot. It turns out that if you put out a news article or some article or some post, and even the number of likes. And the number of times that that has been shared uh, can influence how you perceive that article. And I don't just mean that, okay, if the article has been liked a lot of times, then you might have a higher regard for it. I think like that. I mean, no, not, not, um, if it was just that, it would be understandable and acceptable. But it's worse than that. It turns out that when you see an article that has a high number of shares, um, you believe that that article has influenced you and others uh, more than it actually might have. And then you would actually start acting on the article's advice. So we call this self-perception and third-party perception. So the perception of belief itself changes. So it's not just that you say that, oh, I think I believe this a little bit more. What, you, what happens is that if you see an article with a large number of shares, it turns out especially this was done for a health post in a controlled study. Um, and they found that uh, what, you, what instead happens is that you think you believe that the article affected you more. And because you think you believe that the article affected you more, you, you actually start believing that the article affected you more and then the article affects you more. So that is the, that is the chain of reasoning that happens. That is the control. And then the, the, because you, the article affects you more, you start following the advice. And so if, for example, I show you a post about this anti-malarial drug, right, that is, that is making the rounds a lot, um, that, you know, it might be a cure or it might, uh, you know, it might uh, lead to halt uh, in symptoms or something like that, this anti-malarial drug, I forget the name, I mean, it's it spread all over the world, you know, this news that this drug might be, a, there's some anecdotal evidence that, that this anti-malarial drug could be a, a way to stop this virus, um, and so now what's happening is that if I actually show you a post with, about that antimalarial drug and its effectiveness, um, and that post has a lot of sheds, As opposed to, and you see that okay, it's been shared five thousand times, and then you see the very same article. Someone else sees the very same article, but it's only been shared five times. Um, You know, you would actually act on that because it's been shared five thousand times, Um, and you know, so you don't need a bot. You can actually control things like how many times an article has been liked and shared, and so on. Um, And you can get bots to do that, right? So you can build a dumb bot that actually shares the, you can build 5,000 dumb bots that don't do anything, they don't put any messages out, they have no AI, but they're very mechanical and they just share a lot of articles and they like a lot of articles. So they share and like things that are that have been produced, maybe by fringe groups, by actual groups. Um, and the fact that something has been shared and liked a lot of times can very strongly influence you without even you realizing it. It's
0: so like, you don't feel like like a yeah, it's like driving by a restaurant and if you see a line, you see one that's busy and you see one that's empty, you naturally assume the busy one has better food. It's better, right?
2: Yeah, yeah just... but the thing is that actually when you see the line, it's real people still, right? I mean, maybe it grew out of a fluke, maybe the line grew out of a fluke, but it's still real people. The thing sure. is that in social media, the likes and shares do not have to come from real people, right? So that's when difference comes in, the technology can play a role, where it doesn't have to be real people. You know, and it's kind of like a fake review problem where the review doesn't have to be, maybe it was written by someone real, but it, it could be a fake review. Uh, or if someone has a post which got liked 5,000 times, I mean, we don't know that 5,000 people actually read the post and liked it, right? So all these things are, you know, we can't really trust uh, normal signals anymore um, because it can, these things do happen. So it's not it's not that um, these are what if experiments, you know, these studies are showing that that there are uh, subconscious influences um, of these things and that these, um, uh, the things that cause the influence can actually, uh, you don't need real people for that. You can actually bring about that influence with fairly minor um, uh, technology. And uh, you know, so it's, it's much worse than just having an AI bot is kind of what I was trying to say, that right? the sure. AI bot seems even worse. But even before that, you have this level of manipulation
0: when When you you talked about you know it's it's hard to to trust things now. And, and I hear that, and I'm thinking about the the conditioning of likes and of grades and of this gamification almost that we've lived in. And now we're removing that trust element from from our from our interaction, if you will, because we're supposed to we're supposed to trust that that someone liked that liked our project because they clicked the like button or the hard or the thumbs up. Right. Um, And in the long term, you know, with with technology, as technology is growing and we're supposed to trust it. But yet systems are built on top of that that are ensuring that we shouldn't trust it. Where's the middle of the road here? Where how do we bring trust back? And how do we keep ourselves and um, and the ancillary? Plugins and everything else that that create these bots. How do we keep them honest?
2: I think by making people aware of them. That's that's the only uh, um, that's the only middle ground I can think of because they won't go away. Um, I mean, the, the price for making them go away might be too drastic because if it would mean shutting down the platform or putting too much, too many restrictions on speech, and that comes with its own baggage. I'm not supportive of that, right? So it's uh, you we can't actually. Um, prevent people from uh, or bad actors from uh, you know even even people who are not bad you know like it's easy to think in terms of good and bad you know and state controlled and non-state controlled but the truth is that there is a whole spectrum where you might have some bad actors and then they influence people who are not so bad but they genuinely start believing in something because of these controls um and then they convince other people and then they convince other people so it's almost like a weave of innovation except it's an in information it's a wave of information that spreads. Um, and there is just enough truth in it that it, it can't be debunked. Um, you know, and if it's an opinion, then it can't be debunked at all because it's an opinion and you can rely on the credentials of the person who is providing the opinion as, as kind of a, a, a stamp of, uh, uh, you know, just like the, with these experts, right? I mean, they are, they are presenting policies, um, but they are not experts in policy, but they are experts in, in epidemiology. So, so we are being told that, okay, these are the experts and they are telling us to do this and this is why you should listen to them. And you can't argue because um, they are the experts and you are not. And so, you know, you, you don't, in some sense, you don't have the tools with which to uh, argue. You know, the only tool is that you have to go and read up on that and become an expert yourself and that's too much, right? Um, so I think you have, we have to make people aware of, um, of the different levels of control that, that happen. We have to make them aware that this can happen, that they there are fake likes and fake reviews that the problem can be widespread. There are bots, there are uh, degrees of control. And that even, even without the technology being used to do it, there is also a certain bias in the media and the way that the media presents itself. Um, there is a, you know, these recommender systems and so on, you know, there is an echo chamber effect a lot of times. Um, so I think people need to become aware of that. The only problem is that most people, live their lives and they have enough to be worrying about um and this is not at the top of their agenda and sure. i think that what and, and i'm not saying that it should be you know that's a very elitist line of thinking to actually say that oh you know this is the number one thing that you should be caring about no you have you have to feed your family you have to keep a job you have to stay safe i mean those are at the top of the agenda as they should be you know the misinformation and the influencing and all of those things are, are interesting intellectual exercises but they don't seem to have a very strong material impact compared to holding down a job or, or paying your bills, right? That has a very strong material impact. It has immediate influence in your life. So it's, it's hopeless in a way, in a way. And um, I mean, some directions are that, okay, people should have privacy. To me, it's really, a, you know, this conversation about, you know, you have to sacrifice privacy for the greater good is the most dangerous form that this conversation can take. And uh, I think we need more privacy. And, and the best that we can do collectively is that we should have more privacy and we should have the ability to express ourselves without, um, feeling, some kind, without feeling censorship, whether it's an explicit state censorship or organizational censorship, or it's a, um, it's a, a social censorship. You know, mm-hmm. because that's what we are seeing and you can't outlaw that. You can't outlaw social censorship, right? You can remove state censorship, but you can't outlaw social censorship. So it's, you know, you can't tell people that, oh, you can't go around telling people what not to do. You know, then you will be removing freedom of speech. So we have to make people comfortable with, um, we have to, you know, address the problem of social censorship by having privacy. And, you know, that, and so then the idea is it doesn't matter. You can censor me in these forums, and then I'm just not going to give my opinion in these forums if all I'm going to get is censorship from you. But I have other forums where I can express myself, and there's no one to censor me because I'm anonymous, you know. And I can I can come together with like-minded people, and I can discuss what I want. That's, and these are things which we are right now doing in the in in uh, you know we call it kitchen table talk, right? And we can only do <laughs> a certain. Yeah, it's true. And it's so it's even even that is getting eroded. You know, we are we hear about how friends um, uh, have their friendships broken. Or have uh, families have broken up because of disagreements uh, uh, in politics, right? And it's become yeah. right that's the extent to which this control has now percolated that it's uh, it's breaking up uh, very close knit units. And uh, you know, so we need the privacy, and we need the we need to make people aware that you know this is not you should not think of facts as uh, um, you know you should not think of opinions as facts, and you should not think of a recommendation as a fact and as a as a golden truth. You know, and I think technology can maybe bring about more diversity in the presentation of information, but it the big uh, companies need to do more of this. Um, we can't force them to do it. So they have to actually do more of this. They have to come up and provide more diverse recommendations. They have to, uh, they, they have a certain responsibility, but no one can force them to do it. And yeah. hopefully they will, they will realize that they, that if they don't do it, then um, eventually uh their own power will go away because people will stop expressing real opinions, uh, which is already happening, you know, on social media. And if people don't express real opinions, then how can you advertise to to them? How do you get to know them? Right? I mean, it's not going to be effective anymore.
0: Um, Well, I I think it's one thing, you know, where we've missed, uh, we've missed a spot in this acceleration of communication and knowledge and information. And that is, is that, we're no, longer, we're no longer sharing information. I'm now telling you what I think is right. And that disconnect of trying to understand you and you understand me and understanding we can disagree on a lot of things, but at the same time still agree on other things. And that to have a, um, a discussion or a, or a debate, not a debate to win you to my side. But a debate so that you understand how I think so that you know me better as a person is has been lost for 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 a long period of time. Now, real quick, I want to just do a do a quick pivot here. Um, we're, we're a little past our hour here, uh, but I want to ask you two, two things. Uh, one. When this when this is over, when the when the when the restaurants are open and everything's open, Where's the first place? Where's the place you're going to go out and eat, and who who's going to go with you?
2: <laughs> oh my! Uh, I mean, I don't know about a restaurant, but I am. I would. I I would certainly leap at the chance to get back to my office. Okay. Uh, I'm my office, but I am very inspired by by my office. You know where, um, and I, I I certainly would love to get back to that. Um, you know even though it would mean a longer commute and so on and then just to walk around the neighborhood to go to the grocery store that next to my office to see things being normal to see the the pastries you know and the bakery and everything to see the people on my commute um you know that i i mean i don't know any of them but i know their faces because i would see them almost every day you know we have a certain rhythm to when we get on the train and so on and so there would be a lot many familiar faces um and i want to see all of them I, i think i want to actually uh um, that is what i'm looking forward to because i'm not a big uh and i want to start going to the gym and and seeing my uh you know people used to come to the gym and so on so i it's not so much eating out in restaurants but uh um because i, I wasn't big on that before uh but i do want to start going to all these other places that were fixtures in my life and um uh, seeing that everything is still normal that everyone survived and um they're still doing well, and that you know they are. We we managed to get back from where we left off. So I I want to I want to get a general sense. You know by 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 walking in the neighborhood, by going to all the different places I eat at when I'm in my office, uh, to see that everything is still normal. That I'm still seeing the familiar faces and the employees. You know, uh, for example, at the Chipotle that is right next to my office. Um, you know that that I'm still seeing those employees and that everything is normal and uh, businesses have survived. You know, and I want to see that. I, I, I will not, um, I think I would be very disturbed if I don't see that. And, uh, or I see a lot of um, substitutions uh, where, you know, it's, it's the same thing, but there are different faces. And, uh, you know, I think that will also be very jarring to, to because I would then start asking in my mind that what happened to all those other people, you know, the ones who were there before. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's, it's beautiful. I, I like that. Uh, my daughter poked her head in and she wanted to remind me uh, email me your address. We're making cookies today. Oh, my <laughs> like chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, can we send him chocolate chip cookies? And I'm like, yes, hold on, hold on. I'll, we'll get that. So we'll, we'll, um, yes, well, you have to give
2: me that. I still remember talking about that in that restaurant yeah, and I, I know. know you're a very good cook
0: is what I hear. So, you know, you have to send me stuff. I'll get you some, you should just the address and I'll, I'll get them out. Uh, I'll, send I'll, you I'll you get, perfect. I'll get them out today. All so right, guys, so ready to go. So it's an essential I service. Forward, I would look forward to that. So I will send you my address through the mail. Perfect. Well, listen, this has been a, a true pleasure. Uh, you know, as I've, I've told a couple other people this, but uh, I'd love to do this again in two or three months down the road and just talk about where things are at and how things are going and other topics that interest you and everything else. But most importantly, thanks for the time. I mean, sure. I say this we on every
2: coronavirus research as well by that time. Hopefully yeah. we'll have exciting results on that. I mean, we're, we're working actively on that. I may have my first paper on that uh, sent for submission, hopefully in just 10 to 15 days. Um, so, where I'm trying to study social media. I'm trying to see, well, you know, when did when this broke out in January, like, you know, what, what how did it kind of reflect in social media? Like, what were people talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. We're gonna try and use some machine learning to uh, to study all the social media data. At scale. So, you know, I, I'm happy to talk more about that in the second, you know, whenever um, we do next, you know, I would, I would love to actually uh, talk more about what we did on that front. And,
0: uh, yeah. That, that'd be excellent. And for anybody out there, um, prefer if they wanted to reach out, if they had some information or they wanted to participate, lend technology, whatever, into oh, anything that you're working send on. An
1: email.
0: Okay. And how do they, best LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn or, or even the email through which we communicated. Okay, um, I'll, I'll, put communicate yeah. I'll put that in the description. I'll uh, put that in the description on the SoundCloud page. But thank you so much, my friend. Uh, it's, right. it's, it's, so, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I always learn so much, and um, I wish you all the best. And uh, like I said, get me that. I'm going to step in the kitchen now and uh, start making some cookies.
2: All right, and I will send you my address.
0: Thank you, sir. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye, okay, bye bye.
1: Tex, mate, takes, takes, Time and money, mine, expense, my expense. You would never check in the southwest. They don't wanna help, they wanna help and They don't wanna help. Ah. I done got it change, no change, change. Next chain. day I got clean on change, change, change. Now they watch it, lease them, put him in the gold roll. Why you callin'? Text me, checks, checks, Time and money might expensive. expensive. You and me were not best friends. Let ring, they can take. Who are you calling? Just text me. Time and money might expensive. You and me were not best friends. Let ring, they can take.